This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me in the studio today is Dr. Mark Donohoe, an integrative GP of great renown and great history. And I'd like to welcome Mark back to the studio today for a shorter FX Medicine podcast on epigenomics, nutrigenomics, and modern medicine. Mm. So welcome back, Mark. A pleasure to be back again. Mark, this is going to be a shorter one. We're really just going to take the tip of the iceberg because there's so much to delve into at a later stage with you. And so much is unknown in this particular area as well. So we are going from the tip and trying to interpret what's below. Yes. And we need to wait a while for certain uh, aspects of that to come to light. But I think firstly, one of the things that confuses me is the definitions. What's epigenetics versus genetics Mm. and what's nutrigenomics? Well, I mean, at its simplest, we have a genome, and a genome project was the most exciting Mm. thing of the previous decade. Really understanding that there was a genome of only 23,000 genes, remember? I mean, Mm. we were expecting to have more than asparagus and more than most of the other (laughs) things that we were looking around. It was a, a real shock for us. What happened with the genome project is there weren't enough genes to explain diversity of humans. And so the original problem was, okay, wheat's got 150,000 genes, we've got 23,000. Clearly we are more complex than wheat, so how does this whole process work? We have the dogma of the 1950s, which is discovery of DNA as uh, as the mechanism of genetic transfer. And so genetics was really... Here's the base pairs, here's how they line up, here's how a a messenger RNA expresses a protein. And we imagined that this was blueprint, the little workers that went out and they built cells. There was magic, you know, why is something a liver, not a brain? Why, you know, what's Mm. up, what's down? But it was always thought these were just the I's to be dotted and T's to be crossed. The way you build something as complex as a human from 23,000 genes is now emerging to be the next big thing. Those genes have an expression. You know, we express something for, say, a hemoglobin construction, and we have proteins that come out of that. Or a fingertip. Or a fingertip or an eye. or And so everything has a, a, a kind of recipe book from mm. which it can draw. Mm. And I think what we're seeing now is instead of it being blueprint worker and construction job, we're thinking of it more as either a recipe book or a menu that you can select from. You cannot select from outside that. So the genetics are... What's your substrate? What can you possibly do? What you do is epigenetics. The the regulation of those genes is not purely the gene that expresses the protein. It's what happens on either end of those genes. And so the genetic line, the DNA, has got turn off, turn on. And then in addition, we have these things called single nucleotide polymorphisms, which is 
a single amino acid which is replaced, one, sorry, a single triplet of a base yep, pair yep. that is replaced, which changes an amino acid, which changes something in its expression. And so the SNPs are the hot area of medicine because now you've got an explanation for diversity. The SNP is small variations from one person to another. We've done the statistics of it. Some people, the best known ones are, say, the MTHFR ones, where there's low function of methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, or there's high function. You have raised homocysteine when there's low function, and so we can make the kind of connection. Oh, I, as a doctor, I see a heart attack person, a male of 45 having a heart attack, who's a homozygous 677T variant. Oh, that comes from this gene. And so we now have the link of here's the gene, here's the SNP that yep. gives the odd variant. Yep. There's the homocysteine and there's the heart attack. And if you've got the double allele. That's it. The homozygous is the is the critical one for that. So it really is an area that you really need to be up on. It's not a light area. No. I mean, this really only, does my brain. Not in, only is it not light, I have an, I know a geneticist, a person, you know, uh, Judy Ford, who is a well-known geneticist in the area of toxicology. She's going on to writing books and the like. But her take is like many geneticists. We are over-interpreting SNPs. You know, we think that we know them and we think, oh, well, we'll just translate, here's a SNP, here's an outcome, and everything will be explained by that. And an enormous amount of research has gone into epidemiology where they identify premature heart attacks, cardiovascular risk. They, they get the people who fall into these categories and then simply say, which SNPs are dominant in that area? So we've got the reading backwards at the moment of, here's all the Parkinson's disease, do they carry a common SNP? And we've searched the genome for the single nucleotide polymorphisms that would match it. So you then have this da these data appearing where it is, oh, here it looks like there's the gene for the heart attack at age 45. And it's nothing like that. Yeah. What you've got is susceptibilities. You've got the genetics, which is the transcription. It turns on or off according to the regulators on either end. Methylation or um, ethylation of the histones are critical to whether a gene is turned on or off. And so we have a methylation cycle interfering with or expanding the range of genetic expression. We have SNPs that say, oh, no, that's a variant from the common form. And then we've got the nutrigenomics. What is the nutritional impact on all of that? To affect the biochemistry. To affect the biochemistry so that something comes in via the gastrointestinal tract and we say, oh, well, that's switched off particular genes and so the lipid depositing genes are settling down because there's an excess of the lipids. And we think of it that way. What got interpolated in the last five years is we carry 23,000 genes. There are approximately three or four million genes that are in the microbiome of the gut. So the discovery now is... We don't have to interfere with the gene itself. We don't have to introduce viruses to change it. We've got methods that we're finding that turn on genetic expression of a particular type in the gut, which regulates our own genome. We've definitely got the communication going between gut microbes and mitochondria. Mm. They have a communication Absolutely. method where one can turn up and down the energy. It's like the gut bugs have weren't, volume control. Weren't mitochondria initially an, an archaic... Yes. Bacteria? Is that right? No. Or, or, or potentially? This is Lynn Margulis's work, mm. one of my absolute heroes, who I just found out on the weekend originally married Carl Sagan. So that was... You know, oh, really? A, yes, a nice dynamic pair, Carl Absolutely. Sagan and Lynn. So Carl was the external universe and Lynn was the one that proposed these mitochondria have bacterial DNA. It was symbiosis in an ancient past that allowed things to go from unicellular, where they were never going to get any bigger. They had to have a power supply. 
the ingested bacteria took up their roles, started swapping around DNA with the nucleus of that cell, and from that we have multicellular organisms. Otherwise, multicellular does, does not exist. Mm. So it's not surprising that the bugs that got into us that allowed for us to develop construct a gut mm. for other bugs, their mates, you know, they go, yeah, hey, yeah, listen, yeah. go over come and over invade here. that thing and come back in a 500 million years' time and give us a place to live. Yeah. So the paradox is these bugs outnumber ourselves 100 to 1. The gut bugs number us, outnumber ourselves 100 to 1. We've got this communication going on in the genetics of those two groups where there seems to be direct communication to turn up and down our metabolic rate, and that changes the whole of the transcription issues all over again. So the excitement is the confusion. The excitement is we've touched on genetics. We thought 23,000. How could that be? Now what we've got is infinite expansion because what we eat changes that expression. What we do in the SNPs, they're still very important to know what a person's vulnerability is, tells us what's likely to break, what's likely to go wrong in a particular gene. You know, so it does the methylation. The, a big one for my group of people who are hyper-responsive is the catecholaminomethyltransferase, COMPT. Yeah. And that gene expression can be turned up and down dramatically mm. by what a person eats. Mm. What they're eating and the the ability to clear catecholamines, which is adrenaline, noradrenaline, dopamine, the ability to clear those out of the neurons is massively affected by what people eat. They'll tell you that. You know, I eat stuff with glutamate, which is the MSG converted via the gut, and it affects my, you know, I'm dry, I'm wired, I can't sleep. And so you get this clear pattern of what we eat affecting gene expression. Yeah. And I think that's our next step. Our next step is to say, here's all that we know about genetics. That was simple, yeah. relatively. Yeah. Here's what we know about how they turn on or off, which is methylation, ethylation of histone complexes. Here's the variants that are nature's little you know, test tube. We mm. will try different, different amino acids coming out here and see what works best. And then the whole of that provides us an interface with the environment. Our closest environment is the gut, what we feed it, feeds right back into that system to turn the same genes on and off. I guess where my caution comes in is um, if I wanted to put it into a little neat package, it would be guarantee of therapy. Mm. Um, for instance, it's been shown that if somebody has a high homocysteine and they already have um, stable angina, then lowering homocysteine will not take away their angina in exactly the same way that if a baby is born with a cleft palate, giving them folic acid will not take away their cleft palate. It's, the, it's set now. Yeah. So therefore, the question is, is homocysteine a target to aim for or merely a marker that something's going on and we need to do something around that? Yeah, the broken, the broken bits, we still have the job to go and fix. Yeah. So I, I do understand what you're saying. I think there's really? a bit of, yeah, I think there's a little <laughs> bit of a difference. The cleft palate we would regard as physically impossible to imagine that having a repair process, whereas at least there's the plausibility that if you do what's required nutritionally to manage the homocysteine, the net effect of inflammation reduction could play out eventually. Doesn't In furthering damage. Yeah, but yeah. it doesn't yeah. stop angina because angina is the consequence of 30 years. Mm. And that 30 years does not get repaired by fixing a gene. That's an accumulated damage. And then we have to look to the expression of other genes, yeah. things that might clear up the kind of garbage collection system or the vitamin Ks. You know, if there's calcium in that 
Can we, with vitamin K2, shift it back to the bones? Can we do something that is going to push things back in another That's direction? That's a really interesting story, vitamin oh, I, K. I agree. It's a fascinating story. There is so story. much more to come out with vitamin. And I should point out it's vitamin K2. Yeah. The longer chain yeah. um, of vitamin K. It is, it's certainly interesting, but it, it does provide... I, you know, I know a cardiologist who says vitamin K does not get all the calcium off there. But what we're stopping is there was an accumulation of worsening calcium over time. If all it does is stabilize, that's yes, an improvement relative plaques. to the previous course. And stopping the necrosis yes, and, and maybe redistributing some of the, the plaque. So when we come back to this idea of nutrigenomics, I think of as clinicians have known that diet does stuff to people. Mm. We watch people get thin. We watch people get fat. We watch the differential expression of angina. And we know that diet is playing out. We've had a simplistic model of, oh, fat goes to gut, goes to artery, goes to heart attack. And now what we're seeing is it is far more subtle than that. Fat goes to the gut, gives signals. The gut signaling causes changes. If the people have a lousy methylation capacity, that will show up as inflammation on an arterial wall. I can pick the methylation, the homozygous methylation disorders. The family history is Uncle Bob died of a heart attack in his 40s. If they're really stressed, they die in their 40s. If they're not very stressed, they die in their 50s or 60s. And so you can pick those people with the high lipoprotein, small A, and the methylation disorders because over and over, males keep dying then. And so it's not hard to pick the kind of family history where you'd want to know in the person at the earliest stage they can. I'm encouraged that people now pay attention to these methylation snips because they have their babies tested. Mm. It's a little swab in the mouth. Yeah. And you get to know, is this a person who's going to do well with particular types of diet? Is this a person who, if we got the methylation cycle functioning early on, is never going to run into those problems or behavioral disorders? If but these... can, you, can you guarantee they'll never run into No, that? you can't. You can reduce you can, their yeah, risk All you can do is say... We can get this around some of the SNPs. Yeah. We can get around some of the misexpressions. But if you have to pick one thing to do, you go for the dietary modification mm. so that you don't hurt the gut. You provide for the broadest biodiversity of the gut. You let the signaling go back so that whatever the person's DNA tells them, whatever the methylation is, whatever the SNPs are, they're eternally modified to meet the environment outside. So prob talking about probably the most interesting one for many listeners, and that's going to be um, how coffee affects oh, different yeah. people. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. can we have a brief conversation about that, the upregulation of the fast metabolizers and the slow metabolizers and what it means and how you, how you tell? Yeah, I, I was impressed by Mark Houston's honesty. Um, he's a non-coffee drinker and never has been a coffee drinker. It's hard Poor to man. imagine someone getting through <laughs> medicine without coffee. I'm, I would put my money on the fact that if you check medical students, those people with the brains, which are the high turnover, rapid, logical, you'd find most of them are fast metabolizers, simply on the basis that they have to drink coffee to get through exams, and failure to drink coffee would cause them heart attacks by the time they were 21. But Mark is a CYP 1A2 variant on the low function side. I think he was a bit rich saying there's low function and there's high function. That's not exactly how it is. What there is is there, there is a gradation, mm. and the CYPA1A2 is one of those factors. In the O-methyltransferase, the catecholamine O-methyltransferase, coffee triggering a, metho, uh, uh, a kind of adrenaline-like effect in the body, it's also not cleared. So trimethylxanthine has a clearance which is similar as well. So we think of adrenaline 
And we think of those people who are rapid responders, the ones who say, I cannot have a coffee after midday because I can't sleep at night. You can already pick the COP182s that are not functioning in that area. So they're the slow metabolizers. They are. And they're the ones that whose genetics push them down to that low end. But they're a slow and very slow. Mm. Right? The, the person who says, if I have one after six, I can't sleep, is probably normal. There is a rough turnover mm. around three and a half hours, and, and you would expect them to be able to sleep. But the high turnover ones never understand the others. So having, you know, six coffees in a day where it doesn't have much an effect, and I have to admit to this, I'm one that if I have a, a strong coffee at 11 p.m., I'm asleep by 11.30. It never affects me. So the 1A2 is an easy one to pick up. But what we do do is we use coffee now more and more to induce those enzyme functions. So an inducible cytochrome P enzyme is one that you give the coffee in order to pick up the metabolic function of the liver. And in fact, as you know from the, from the gastroenterologist, they're using coffee more and more to try and pick up enzyme responses in a very nonspecific way, challenge the liver, get it to turn over a bit quicker. You know and indeed to look, yeah, to, to heal non-alcoholic steatohepatosis right. yes. or NASH. And so, well, it, it may or may not heal it, but what it can do is induce a higher turnover and get a better metabolic state. You turn it over more quickly, then you've got to have, remember, the nutrients, the glutathionation, the glycination. You've got to have the sulfation on the other end because even trimethylxanthine needs a way out of the body at the end of that. Even, even caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> even caffeine needs a way out. So it's, it's a detox. Coffee is a toxin. What we're going to do is detoxify it, and it's like drug, like drug cytochrome enzymes, like all the other enzymes. We are just learning the start of it, but diet is going to play the biggest impact on all of that, not drug therapy. This is such a massive area to go into, and I definitely look forward to having those conversations with you, Mark, because I know that you'll put them into practical little packages for our practitioners, listeners, to, uh, to use in their clinics. Little tiny things that come out of the research which have got... GP or naturopathic applicability, I think that's the way to go. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.